My name is Laura Friedman, and this is A Public Discourse, a podcast by the Office of Public Affairs of the Baha'i Community of Canada. This is a sixth episode of our series, A Vision of Oneness, inspired by the centenary of the passing of Abdu'l-Baha, a central figure in the Baha'i faith who devoted his life to promoting the faith of his father. When he visited Montreal in 1912, Abdu'l-Baha gave a series of public talks in which he talked about humanity's need for spirituality. He said that human beings will remain like the glass without light if they are deprived of the spiritual virtues. And he referred to humanity's need for enlightenment so that the oneness of the world of humanity will be revealed. In this episode, we are joined by three accomplished Canadian architects to reflect on the relationship between our physical environment and the human spirit. We will be talking about how a building or a place can help to illumine the inner life of a person and what role architecture can play in the spiritual upliftment of society. So I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Hussein Amanat, Professor Bridget Shim, and Siamak Hariri. All three of you are architects who have designed significant cultural buildings, including many that are intended to be places of worship. So I'd like to invite each of you to briefly introduce yourselves and also to tell us where you came from and what attracted you to a career in architecture. So Bridget, I'll start with you. Thank you so much for um, inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Bridget Shim, and we have a practice, uh, Shim Sutcliffe Architects, and I practice with my husband and my partner, Howard Sutcliffe. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica, and came to Canada uh, when I was about in grade one and uh, have lived here since then. Um, and uh, we have sort of maybe accidentally uh, designed uh, several sacred spaces. And it really poses some very interesting and profound questions for where we are at this point in the 21st century. So uh, I'm delighted to kind of engage in a kind of discussion about these spaces with two wonderful colleagues and friends. Wonderful. Thank you. It's, it's really lovely for you to join us. And I'm really excited about the conversation as well. Siamak? Thanks, Laura. Um, I'm Siamak Hariri. Um, I'm a partner, founding partner of uh, Hariri Pontrini Architects, which is an architectural studio and we're based in Toronto. I think Bridget and I have a similar background in that uh, I came here when I was six years old as well. I remember it was uh, 1965 and we ended up in Willowdale. And I think you did too, Bridget. So, right? Yes, Willowdale. Willowdale. Yes. So mm -hmm. that was our landing spot. And I remember there were only like six Persian families at the time. Now, of course, it's very different. But uh, um, no, I'm really thrilled to also engage in this conversation. I think it is an important conversation about, uh, about you know, sacred spaces and how how, do you, how does the space become sacred? What what makes it sacred? And I'm so um, honored, really, to be with both Bridget and Hussein, uh, both people that I admire greatly. Thank you, Siamak. And Hussein, would you like to go next? It's an honor to be with Bridget and uh, dear Siamak. I was born in Iran, and I started my practice when I was 24 years old, designing a monument, and continued building in Iran uh, until I came out of Iran because 
of a personal reason, and uh, I never went back uh, without knowing that uh, I won't <laughs> be back. Uh, so I was in London for a while, and from there I uh, continued uh, my practice, and I decided to immigrate to Canada, and I came to Canada in 1980 and ended up in Vancouver where I continued my office and uh, design work continued until now. I am uh, the principal of Amanat Architect. We design every type of building in our office, but uh, mostly sacred ones. <laughs> I do a lot of high rises and uh, residentials, but uh, the one that is very important for me is the sacred one that I'm doing that we will talk about this. Wonderful. Thank you. I can already tell that this will be a very rich conversation. And I feel also very honored to be with the three of you here. And so I'll actually ask you, Hussein, in a recent magazine interview, you said that the essence of architecture has a relationship to the human soul. I was wondering if you could expand on this idea. How does architecture have a relationship to the soul? Right. Uh, I think uh, what I said is because I have felt that when I move in the buildings, some of the buildings, there is a special feeling that I feel, which is not uh, only uh, material, it's something about my soul that I feel. Uh, and that is about the impact of beauty and the proportions of a building and the uh, amount of light and the direction of light and all these re relation of spaces together that somehow impacts your soul like a poem. And it is very difficult to explain what is this feeling. It is a feeling that you get from listening to a beautiful piece of music. It is a feeling that you get from reading a poem. The same happens when you walk into a building that has soul to it. And that is what I meant. I can't talk about what I do. <laughs> so you have to forgive me. Uh, and uh, so my explanations, I hope they are in my buildings. Yes. Uh, I hope they reflect themselves there. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. So I want to ask Bridget, as an architect, you're often thinking about how to design a building or space shaping the built environment. But how do you think our built environment also shapes us individually and collectively? Could you share any examples from your own work that stand out as examples? Well, architecture is such a um, fascinating and uh, complex discipline because one of the things that happens is that we, as architects, work with wood, steel, glass, concrete, and we actually work to making them speak about very profound uh, ideas, but they themselves are quite mute. <laughs> and so how you assemble and 
put these things together hopefully should speak about the community that you're working for and somehow embed their values into some kind of built form where they gather. And I would say that the challenge is that there are many spaces where people gather that I would consider buildings, and there are very few spaces that you would think of as architecture, where there's an aspiration for more than just, uh, you know, so many number of people and exit stairs, but that there should be a, a feeling, as Hussein talked about, some kind of, um, some way that a space touches your soul. And to do that, I would say you need to think about this question of light, latitude, where you're located, situated, and use uh, these uh, kind of powerful tools of light and space to really go beyond the functional program of gathering to leave something uh, deeper in the space. And that isn't necessarily an issue of how elaborate the space is, but how, in effect, light can shape the way that you uh, think about the experience of coming together, of being together, and how that touches your soul, as, as Hussein described so eloquently. So I don't know if that sort of starts to kind of take on the, the, the meat of it, but, but in a way, you know, the wood and the steel, if you took all the materials of a sacred space and laid them all out on a floor, they actually don't do very much. They're, they actually are, uh, you know, they create an envelope, you're protected from the rain or the snow, but they don't say anything. It's how you put them together that actually um, goes beyond the functional program to aspire to something more than that. Beautiful, the way you have explained, yes. Wonderful, thank you. And this leads me to my next question. Speaking of designing uh, sacred spaces in cities, <laughs> Siamak, you recently completed the Baha'i Temple of South America in Chile, which is a house of worship that's open to everyone. So when you were conceiving of the design of the temple, how did you want people to feel when they entered the building? I think, uh, you know, Hussein talked about feeling and uh, Bridget talked about aspiration. And I think those are two really important words. Um, what does it feel like to be in a sacred structure? Is it, It's really, a, it's, it's, it's an important question today. Like, how do you distinguish something sacred from, let's say, a really beautiful art gallery or museum that it has um, a certain particular aspiration. And I think here, the aspiration was that this be a place that everyone, whether you were of this color or that color or this race or that race or this religion or that religion or background, everyone felt like this was a place which it felt like it was their place. Even if you had no belief in any religion or God or anything, that you could feel like this was your place. And there's no clergy in the Baha'i faith. So it really also, while um, worship and a place for worship is as old, as really is as old as humanity itself, it also is radically new. It's totally new. It's a new typology. And um, so it really presented really an amazing challenge. Um, it had to feel like at a time when, you know, that is so fractured, as Bridget said. We're living in very fractured times. 
um, it had to feel like this took down all those divisions and walls and that you're of this tribe or that tribe. And the, the prescription is very simple. It's a single room, no imagery, no uh, music other than a cappella, no sermons, no proselytizing. And uh, it had to feel like this was your place. And so I, I, I think that we thought that it should feel like it was it was like uh, a prayer answered and this idea from the baha'i writings really hit us over the head which is that if a prayer is answered your very being becomes embodied light so that became the theme of the feeling of what this temple should feel like because light is is universal and it does make everyone feel like this is somewhat sacred. And so the principal material for the whole interior is this soft, ethereal, moving light that basically connects us. And then you say, well, it is important. Yeah, you can pray in your own corner any way you want, but it is important. It's as old as humanity that we come together and that somehow in one space you feel like we're all really no better we shouldn't vaunt ourselves over anyone else that we're all part of a single kind of humanity and i think this is really the feeling that we wanted to create was that this felt like it was anybody's space anybody was welcome there and uh, that it was really the, and it had to belong to all of south america really the world, but it was the first Baha'i temple in all of South America. So it had to have that kind of significance, presence, enduring kind of presence, 400-year mandate. So we can talk about that too. It's like a big, <laughs> big stake in the ground. Right. So that was really what we were after, was this sense of soft light, this sense of soaring, this sense of embodied light. Mm, I love how you say this, that if a prayer is answered, you become embodied light. And as someone who's had the fortune of being in this temple myself, and I'm from South America, from Colombia, I can attest to how this really did feel like it was a temple for all of South America. And certainly when I entered the temple, I felt enraptured by light and embraced by it. And it, it, it uplifts you, right? And it helps you to attain another state of prayer and of higher spirit. I think one of the interesting things, CMAC, that you brought up was that for your client group, they wanted a building that would last for 400 years. I think for me, that's such an amazing um, kind of position to take because it actually, you know, we, we're in a point of climate change. There's so much discussion about sustainability and to kind of have in your brief that the building should last for 400 years. <laughs> uh, for me, it speaks to the Baha'i values, that it, it embodies in effect a whole position about the resources that go into making this building needs to be enduring and it needs to really connect to multiple generations of people that CMAC, myself, Laura, Hussein will never meet. This kind of, this, this kind of sense of, um, 
time actually being embedded in the brief to the architect, I just find such a really powerful uh, position to take and one that I feel is so enlightened because for those resources, it's not one generation but multiple generations that will benefit from the effort, the energy, all the care that, you know, CMAC and his whole team have put into this building isn't isn't just for us. <laughs> it's, it's for this much longer uh, legacy that I just think is so important. So I feel like time is a is a material that we are discussing and I just feel like it goes to the heart of what that community is in the, their ability to articulate that right from the outset. It doesn't come, you know, oh, we built the building and it should last 400 years. That is actually part of the the charge to the architect at the very outset of the process. So I just feel it's so, for me, so powerful as a kind of position. And we take it for granted, but to do 400 years, and Hussein can speak to this because the buildings he's building in Haifa are all mandated that way. It means that anything underground has to be phenomenally thought through. So it changes everything. And uh, I, I'm glad you picked up on that because it was really, it was a big deal. But it's coming from the client, not the architect. And it expresses, in effect, more than just, I want a building that's no maintenance. It actually expresses their values so clearly. And I just think that's something that, um, you know, as architects, we don't design buildings on our own. We actually need clients. There's an exchange and a dialogue. And I just feel like it is kind of um, a reflection of a very enlightened client who actually thinks in that time frame. No, similarly with the, the business of aspiration, I think we we are not we should not be in that game. We should just be trying to take the aspiration and, and give it form. And I, I think it's a similar distinction, and that's why I love the fact that you, you started with that word. Um, because you take an aspiration like, okay, design a space where this is a universal space for everyone. That doesn't come from us. That comes from that comes from something much bigger than us. Yes, exactly. This is a perfect segue for, for my next question for Hussein. Uh, you know, we, we're in Toronto and then we went to Chile and now we'll go to Israel for a bit. Hussein, so three years ago, you were announced as the architect of the shrine of Abdul Baha in Israel. And I know that this project has faced a recent setback due to a fire on the building site. So your mind must be occupied with the challenges that presents. However, I wonder if you could talk about how this building is being designed to reflect the heavenly qualities of Abdu'l-Bahá, who is a unique historical figure who was renowned for his selflessness, his empathy, his tolerance, and high aspirations for humanity as a whole. Yes, uh, the fire uh, is uh, being solved, no problem. They are continuing soon. But uh, I wanted to say that Usually, I refer to my heart uh, uh, deeply when I think about design. Mm -hmm. Abdul Baha has been uh, in my heart since my childhood, a figure that I have always loved and cherished. So it was very difficult to think of a place for him. But referring to his qualities, the most important of all of them is humility mm -hmm. and his love for beauty and gardens. 
and uh, many other things. But these two major factors, as I remember now, were the main drives of the design. So I thought of a garden uh, with the, his resting place under that garden. And uh, because of his humility in many of his prayers, he says that make me like a dust that my friends, they walk over it. Mm. So I thought this garden should be in a way that you can walk over his remains. So this room is under this garden, and maybe we usually we don't walk on that garden every day, but that is the concept that presents his humility. And because he's Iranian originally, and although from his childhood when he was eight years old, he and his family, they were exiled from Iran. But he has always expressed a love for the culture of Iran. He expresses the fact that he never forgets that he's an Iranian. Mm -hmm. So because of that, there is a governing pattern in that garden, which comes from a very traditional form and pattern that makes most of the domes of Iranian uh, mosques. Mm, okay, that's very interesting. What Thanks. they call the uh, Karbandi. And this pattern is governing the pattern of that garden yeah. and creates a trellis around his resting place, that area of meditation before you enter the room where his remains are. Altogether, the, the garden has been designed as a garden of meditation. The route that you go until you reach the room, uh, it's all, in my mind, it has been designed to be a walk of meditation. Mm -hmm. Because the people who come to visit, they come from far different corners of the world. Sometimes they have a few bus rides and flights to get to Haifa and then to Akka. So all this travel that they have had only for visiting the shrine, mm. the most important part of it is when they get to this garden and they walk towards that. So these are the main factors that have decided the design of the shrine of Abdul Baha. I think you just took us all on a journey, almost meditative journey. Um, I know this is still being built and there will be lots of people visiting it in the future. But thank you for taking on this journey that was very calming and that I think evoked the spirit that you spoke of, that inspired you, the ways that Abdul Baha inspired you all the way from childhood. It's really, really beautiful. And so now I have to move us from the the peaceful and quiet shores of of Akka and Haifa in Israel back to the busy cities where we find these uh, temples in the middle of these cities. So Bridget, we know that you've designed places of worship and contemplation 
And so the Taoist temple in Markham, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing it properly, Wang Dai Xin Taoist Temple. And it's a stunning modern building, and it's the home to practitioners of ancient spirituality. And it, it's located on a major arterial road. So how did you approach the task of creating this oasis of spirituality in the midst of busy suburbia? Um, I think that's a great question. Um, it is a truly suburban site uh, with gas stations and strip malls nearby. And it was the site of a single family home that sat on the north side of this very busy street. Part of the project is a kind of a series of double cantilevers that actually create both a parking space, but also a kind of covered entry. And I would say one of the things that maybe ties together all of the sacred spaces done by Simak uh, and Hussein is that this kind of need for a threshold between our everyday lives and a sacred space is kind of an essential dimension. I think Hussein did a beautiful job of taking us on this journey, but it was actually about not it was about the transition to arrive at the space. And this kind of in-between zone uh, becomes really critical because you're really asking people to leave their busy everyday lives to actually prepare to enter a different kind of space and to actually refocus their kind of uh, thinking to actually reflect on other things other than, you know, work and play and other things that are kind of part of 21st century life. So these transitional zones, uh, whatever the faith is, uh, kind of are essential to preparing for a different kind of focus. And so whether that's climbing a set of stairs, walking through a meditative garden, uh, these kind of in-between zones, I think, have a very important place to kind of set you up to kind of um, think about different things uh, for the time that you're in the sacred space. And I feel like Architects use different tools to do this, but the commonality, I think, that goes beyond whatever religion or program you're working with is the kind of importance of these in-between zones between our regular lives, <laughs> this transitional zone, and then the actual sacred space itself. And I just feel like that is something that I feel is really essential. It's not like you just leave one and then boom, <laughs> crash into the other, but this kind of preparation of of some kind is really key. I think uh, what you said, even uh, Siamak, you have to explain your building. And unfortunately, I haven't been able to visit the temple of Chile, but uh, it is in my first plan after <laughs> pandemic to go there. But I see from the pictures that you have a, quite a route to get to the temple. And it's a meditative route, what you have done. And it's beautifully done. I love your landscape ideas too. Not only the temple itself, but the landscape. Sorry, just an impression about your building. It's interesting, both what Bridget's saying and what you're saying, Hussein, because I remember uh, one, of, one of the people that were my clients among uh, the governing body in the Baha'i community telling me, um, the Baha'i faith in all of its sacred structures has this idea of, of threshold. It's really interesting because it isn't like you just step off the sidewalk and go in the door. 
It actually is very much like, let's say, a Japanese experience. And so the gardens and the whole business of leaving one condition, as you said, Bridget, and entering another is something that's really a big part of anything that any one of the Baha'i architects or otherwise would be thinking about. And it really has remained with me. Haifa, you have to visit Bridget. Haifa is, Moshe Safdi, you know, grew up right next to uh, the Haifa Gardens. And, and he told me that this was a big part of his experience too. You become suddenly aware of how important gardens are, the whole design, the connection. And your work, Bridget, obviously exemplifies that so beautifully, this outside, inside, the whole relationship between the garden and the space. And uh, anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to go on and on. No, actually, this <laughs> this leads me to my next question to you, Siamak, because one of the, the amazing things about the Baha'i Temple in Chile is how many visitors it receives, right? I think it's now in the millions, I believe. And so how, how do you think a building like this attracts people and brings them together? Well, um, you know, it's really interesting. The history of this is worth studying because uh, at one point, the president of the country and the number two person really felt that this, this represented the values of the country, which was about openness, was about inclusion, that this is where the world needed to go. And, and so we, we began a nine-year journey for the site which is an interesting thing as well, Bridget, when you talk about a client, a client that gives you nine years to find the right site. Um, that's, that's patience. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and lets you start fabricating very expensive materials slowly. That's how confident this client was, which is astounding to me, that we don't have a site. We have a design that more or less would fit in, but we don't even know how it would fit in. But go ahead, make the glass that takes years. Anyway, look, where I'm going with this is in this area, the base of the mountains used to belong to the people. It's called the Cordillera. And this, you know this, Laura, because in, this is a big symbolic thing. The base of the mountains used to belong to the people. And then the rich people came and took the base of the mountains and built all their fancy houses and the the generals and the actors and all of this stuff. And okay. so the people, they have all these very expensive Hollywood-like communities at the base of the mountains that get the best views. And no, the people no longer from Santiago could go. So this project opened up the Cordillera to the people. And so I think part of the answer to what you're saying, Laura, is that it represents something very much around social justice, which is that this brought the Andes back to the people and they could come with their children. They come regularly, they come and they find within it something that they really connect to, a space that belongs to everyone. So, Hussein, I, f I feel like you wanted to say something. Well, uh, the question of beauty is something that really is a part of the whole thing. And it's very difficult to say what is beauty, but proportion and the management of light and interiors and whatever all together you put together to create that space. And in the Siomax project, the Baha'i Temple of Chile, 
it is uh, really he he has succeeded in bringing light to the even the materials that are covering the dome and this i i think is quite an interesting issue apart from the beautiful geometry he has used inside uh, and outside the kind of movement that the forms created uh, they are really very interesting yeah. without creating a beautiful thing you cannot enter the souls of people i think mm. so it's been really uplifting for me and wonderful to talk about these incredible buildings and themes and i get the sense that there's so many lessons that are embedded in your efforts and your experiences so i'd like to invite us to dream a little bit and ask each of you you know you've had this extensive past with a lot of experience and rich lessons and um, but what are your hopes and vision for the role that architecture and beauty can play in the future? Down the line, <laughs> even after we're all gone. <laughs> so, Bridget, would you like to kick us sure. off? Sure. I mean, I think that um, it's been a fascinating conversation uh, that cuts across different faiths to kind of think about some of the essential qualities of building that actually have meaning and resonance. Maybe for me, you know, as we enter a kind of uh, world of climate change and all of the kind of chaos that's happening, I actually think that whether it is a sacred space, a spiritual space, I think that we need buildings that uh, give back give back in different ways. So, I mean, CMAC gave a wonderful example of the siting of the Baha'i Temple actually gives back the base of the mountain to all of the people of Santiago, uh, where in effect they were not able to do that before. This kind of uh, ability to occupy a certain place within the topography of this area is a kind of way that aside from the program and all of the kind of different experiences, it's actually giving back something that was lost before. And I feel that buildings have to find ways to give back. So we use a lot of resources as architects to build our buildings. Uh, they're labor intensive, they're, you know, materially intensive. Um, and so how do we give back in more than just a gathering space, but give back in other ways. And I think that that's something that you would want every building to be thinking about how it's doing as we enter a kind of future that is complicated. So in effect, as opposed to a taker of resources, um, I feel like buildings should be uh, using the resources, but finding ways to that by giving back, it's actually a different kind of exchange than previous uh, buildings of, of another generation. And uh, in a way, one example, I would say of all of the Baha'i temples around the world, the whole idea of the gardens and the building being completely interlocked and interwoven is kind of, a, for me, a very um, easy and really significant way of giving back, that, that it's not just a built form, but it's actually a garden of that place that actually speaks uh, more about the this interrelationship than just a building or just a garden. The two are actually fused together and they create a different condition 
that is both inside and outside, and again, a different way of conceptualizing how we create form. That it's not just the internal form, but it's actually the external, and it touches on the issues of threshold and transition that we spoke about uh, a few minutes ago. Thank you. I love this idea of long-term and sustainability and giving back. So Hussein, what are your hopes and vision for the role that architecture and beauty can play in the future? You spoke about beauty earlier. Well, I hope the architects in future will build for a unified world and not a world of this much chaos and war and everything that we are in now. Uh, that's I'm, really this is my m most important aspiration. <laughs> architecture comes as a result of that. Uh, the more stability and uh, love you found in, in the community in in the world, the more you will have better architecture. I think mm -hmm. that is where we are. Siamak, what are your that. hopes and dreams and vision for the role of architecture in the future? Well, first of all, I'm Hussein's beautiful shrine. I'm just, I'm just can't wait to. Uh, it's going to be magnificent. Hussein, it, it is by far the most important project right now for the Baha'i community. So I'm just uh, so much um, thinking of you and your and hoping for your success. You know, it's a it's a good question that you're asking, Laura. I don't really have a great answer. I think probably all everything what everyone said is is right. Um, when we were opening the temple, and this is a really a nod to what Bridget said. I love the story of the old man on his knees that's planting uh, saplings of fig trees, and I mentioned this story. Uh, someone comes to him and says, "Old man, what are you doing on your knees? You're an old man." Uh, and you're never going to see the figs from these trees. I mean, they're going to be. And he he turned his he turned and he said, you know, I'm I'm eating the figs from the people that planted the trees many generations ago. And I think architecture is actually the most challenging one. And I'm I'm going to be a little daring. I I think because. It involves so many different spectrums. It involves so much money. It involves so much. It's about collective aspiration. You can't just do whatever you want. And you have to really bring together a kind of a unified uh, sense of cohesion and, uh, and then do something that is hopefully going to stay. So I think your question really resonated with me on the story, the, the, the old man, because I think really good architecture you only know 30 years from now 50 years from now and that's the way I think and uh, right now it's everybody can tell you you're doing something good but we'll see 30 years or 50 years from now if they still think the fig tree is good and if there's any figs coming off of it and that's the way I, I like to think about architecture and it's tough to do it's really tough to do there's so many forces that are all about sensation and and ambition and, uh, I don't know, um, fashion kinds of things that uh, come and go and how to stay clear of that and see maybe for yourself what would be around for a long, long time and hopefully still have meaning and uh, feel like it was worth people taking care of it. 
which is something I obsess a lot about. Like, how, how do you create a building that people actually want to take care of and keep and uh, not let just kind of go, which happens a lot. So I think of the old man when I think of uh, architecture in the future. And these 400 years that we spoke about, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think Bridget's right. I mean, what a, I really feel, I was really, really, really privileged to work on that project with many, many, many wonderful peoples, like an orchestra, but more importantly, to serve uh, the governing body for the Baha'i community, which is the House of Justice. Uh, it's impossible to explain the kind of shoulders that you're actually standing on and serving. Impossible, because nobody that I've ever had uh, the chance, they never think, as Bridget so beautifully said, so far ahead so confident <laughs> and i think this is this is an amazing amazing uh, thing really well today we've explored these sacred spaces in canada and chile and israel these transitional zones as bridget said where we prepare for a new state of being to reflect and meditate as we enter these sacred buildings or these thresholds and we've also talked about this feeling as hussein pointed out where we get to walk into these spaces and aspiration as well. And as Siamak pointed out at the beginning, how using powerful tools like light and space can really lead us to something deeper, something that touches our souls, and which always uh, makes us question, what is a sacred space? How can we put materials together that aspire to something bigger? And how can these spaces help bring people together in a fractured world? How can we create buildings for communities based on their values, and in ways that give back to people. So I want to thank the three of you, Hussein, Bridget, and Siamak, for joining us today in the public discourse. And we really look forward to speaking again. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It was a pleasure Wonderful. to be with Bridget and Siamak.